6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching with an introduction and the book of 3 John. So, uh, in retrospect, Matthew, he, ta- he focused on the promised one. He sees his credentials. Ma- Mark, who's really the amanuensis for Peter, we believe, and it, just, it focuses on how he worked. He sees his power. And Luke, this is what he was like, because he's a doctor. His, his nature, he was interested in his, that he was human. John focused on who he really was, his godship, if you will. So, each of the four Gospels are quite distinctive. And it might be useful to refresh our perspective of that before we jump into John's letters. Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah. He's Jewish, the Messiah, the, the coming king. Mark deals with his as a servant, the suffering servant. Luke, the son, being a doctor, the son of man. And John, the son of God. So it's interesting that in genealogies, Matthew has a Jewish genealogy. It starts with the first Jew, if I can put it that way, called Abraham. And he has the legal um, uh, genealogy of Jesus Christ. Mark, his focus is as a servant, and we don't care about the pedigree of a servant. So it's the only one of the four that does not have a genealogy. Luke, since he's interested in his humanity, if you will, he starts his genealogy with Adam. When you, from Adam to Abraham, I mean, it's distinctive. From Abraham to David, they're both identical. But from David on, Luke takes a different path than Matthew does. Matthew goes through the legal line through Solomon. Luke goes through the bloodline of Mary, in effect. Now, John has a genealogy, but most people don't recognize it. It's the genealogy of the pre-existent ones, the first three verses. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And uh, in that whole, in analyzing that, that's really, in effect, the genealogy of the pre-existent one. But Matthew focuses on what Jesus said, Mark, and what he actually did, and Luke, what he felt. You see his passion in there. And John, who he was. And uh, that's why I'm always so intrigued by Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion. It's a great movie, but it's sort of, in a sense, it's sort of like Luke. You feel the passion, but he doesn't do what John does, and that describe who he really is, the Creator incarnate, entering his creation to execute a program for our behalf. So Matthew wrote to the Jew, Mark to the Roman, Luke to the Greek, John to the church. And uh, the first miracle in Matthew, of course, was a leper cleanse. The Jew, that, that's a very Jewish kind of a thing. Both Mark and Luke, since they're both Gentiles, a demon expelled is the first thing in both of those. John has a very different perspective. It's a water to wine. And we even find a hint there of the church issues in terms of communion and all of that. Uh, Matthew ends with the resurrection. Mark goes one step further. He goes to the ascension. Luke goes one step further yet, the promise of the Spirit. Why? Because he's setting up the stage for his sequel, Luke volume 2, called the book of Acts. John, the promise of his return. And that, of course, sets the stage for his sequel, so to speak, the book of Revelation. So, 
And we have uh, where they camped on each of them. I won't get it all that here. And the ensign of the tribes on the four sides of the camp of Israel, which had as symbols the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. And it's been noticed even in the early church, they noticed that those four faces of the cherubim as represented in the ensigns of the four camps are also the four labels of the uh, 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 four gospels. Matthew being the, representing us, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark being servants and the classical idiom of service was the ox, the strength of the ox. Luke, man, of course, and John the eagle. And uh, so, so for what it's worth. And it's also a little different now. But anyway, so that's, that's the perspective of John. John is really focusing on a, on a very high plane here in his materials. The gospel of John is a very unusual gospel because it's one that a beginner can read and gain something from. It's also the most advanced theologian in the world can go through it and find, make, continually make new discoveries. They often say it's, it's uh, accessible enough for a child to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to, to wash. So. Okay, enough of that. The epistles of John, first, second, and third, but we're going to start with the easy one first, okay? Third John. It's, it, it's the shortest one in the Greek, and it's written for the purpose of commending to Gaius some Christians who were strangers in the place where he lived and who had gone thither for the purpose of preaching the gospel. So this is sort of a tutorial for his friend Gaius. The second and third epistles were probably written soon after the uh, first, from all these probably from Ephesus. One of the key words in this will be testified, report, bear record, record. Um, these are all uh, uh, witness terms, and we'll be sensitive to that as we go. They're not just words. But by the life that's led, every Christian is a, is a witness, either a good one or a bad one. We're either helping the truth or hindering it. And we're either part of the solution or part of the problem. In other words, okay. So, third epistle of John. Gaius is the encourager. From verses 2 through 8, it's going to be a, talk about a, 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 a service and love. The second one will be Diotrophenes, which is the dictator. And there's five indictments laid on him. He's bad news. And then Demetrius, he's the exemplar. He's the good example. He's the good guy. And each of us has the opportunity to be part of the solution or part of the problem. I won't ask for a show of hands. Okay? But guys, the encourager. Verse 1, The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. By the way, right now, before I prejudice your view, what does that mean when John says, whom I love in the truth? What's he talking about? The veracity of facts in general? What does he mean by the truth? What, what, I love in the truth. What is he probably alluding to? Being a, very good. Yes, Christ. It's equivalent to the way we might say, love you in Christ, in the truth. He's using the truth here, I believe, as a title. Of Jesus Christ. That's not important here. It's pretty, it doesn't disrupt our flow here, but it may be very important for us to understand John's style here. Anyway, the elder. Presbyteros. What does it mean? It's an elder of age, elder of two people, an elder of senior. It's also, though, a term of rank or office and is so used typically in the church. The New Testament uses the term bishop, elders, and presbyters interchangeably. Some people try to make, you know, Hair, uh, distinctions between these three, but there's some evidence that they're really in effect for our purposes, certainly, uh, interchangeable terms. And uh, 
We even find 24 elders seated on the thrones around the throne of God in, in Revelation 4, which is a very critical area to really understand. Now, this is the third epistle of John. It's addressed to Caius or Gaius, and, uh, it's, and, but whether to the Christian uh, 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 by that name in Macedonia or in Corinth or in Derby. There are three Gaiuses in the Bible, in Macedonia, Corinth, and Derby, in different places. Which one is the focus of the letter is a subject of speculation. We don't know. I'm sorry I can't give you some fringe discovery to give you a bias there, but I'm sure you've got more important things to focus on. Uh, we, the truth of the matter is uh, com the commentary community is uncertain as to which one it might be. But he continues, verse 2, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. Interesting. First of all, John loved this man. Beloved occurs four times in this little note. Four times. And we know from this that he was sound in doctrine. That's refreshing. But I want you to notice the inversion. May your physical health be as sound as your spiritual health. That's pretty cool, I think. You know, that's, that's, that in itself is a, an interesting accolade just tucked away inside that. You see, I, I uh, hope you prosper and be in health as, as your soul prospers. That's a, there's an inversion there that I think is, is colorful. In physical health, you know, we can identify a number of factors. Nutrition, exercise, cleanliness, proper rest, and the discipline of a balanced life. Any surprises there? This pretty much is a, you know, a five-step program to, uh, you could elaborate on. Your spiritual health, same group. Nourishment, the Word of God. That's what, did, what digestion is to the body, meditation is to the soul. Wow. Exercise, a godly workout. Guys read it, meditated on it, delighted in it, and then practiced it daily, we learn. Cleanliness, what does that mean? Avoiding con the contamination and pollution of the world. That's tough in our world, isn't it? It was tough in theirs. But admittedly, technologies enhance the pressures of the world on each of us. Rest in the Lord, fellowship with Him, and finally a discipline of a balanced life. And each one of these has verses you can dig out of the notes, and I encourage you to develop a program for yourself from the Word of God in terms of your spiritual health. We'll resist the temptation to, to belabor the obvious here. The verses are, will be in your notes for what it's worth. But he continues, verse 3, For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. Would that we each would have a reputation precedes like that. As thou walkest in the truth. Compare that to the first three verses of the book of Psalms. Blessed is the man that walketh uprightly and so on. Be a doer, not just a hearer. That's why we have three legs in the stool of the Institute. Berean, verse by verse, the study of the Bible. The Issachar leg, the study, understanding the times. But the third one, the Koinos track, the practical doing of whatever you've been called to. True living comes from living truth. Verse 4, I have no greater joy. This is John. Get, get a, a glimpse of John's heart here. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Boy, that's a pastor speaking, isn't it? That's a shepherd speaking. He cared for all of them that, thy, that my children walk in truth. All of them. This is follow-up from the heart. But John had a pastor's heart. Verse 5 and 6. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, 
which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Deeds, not just words, is the call here. Sounds like James 2, and it's going to, and it's going to echo further in, uh, as we go on here. After a godly sort, worthy of God as befits God. We're never more godlike than we, when we are sacrificing to serve others. The real joys in life are serving others. But when that service becomes sacrificial, that is when we really are bearing testimony. After a godly sort. You know, Second John, the one we're going to get next time, warns against showing hospitality to false teachers. If you wish them Godspeed, you are a partaker of their deeds, it says. Here, the assumption is that intimate hospitality is restricted to believers. In chapter 2, uh, uh, excuse me, the second epistle, it's going to be even more restrictive, and that should be a clue to what that epistle, that epistle is really all about. But we're getting out of ourselves. Verse 7 here. Because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. In other words, never soliciting help from the unsaved is what is the thought here. It isn't that they're non-Jewish. The implication is that they're non, uh, uh, you know, uh, unbelievers. Abraham had this same policy in Genesis 14. And uh, not uniformly, but he sure did there. You know, this leads to a comment on donation policy. A need is not in itself sufficient qualification for a donation. Be sure that the Lord is in it. Be wary of those generally soliciting from all that come, from all that come their way. There are many ministries the Lord would probably shut down if the gullible would let him. But anyway, we therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. We have to receive such. Hospitality is not only an opportunity, it's also an obligation. Those who receive spiritual blessings from the ministry of the Word ought to share material blessings. You pay your board where you get your food, they say. Okay. Fellow helpers. We know that Gaius' gift, we, we know not what his gifts were, but we know that he was committed to assist. That's what the, ter the, the term reveals to us there. Now, if John did write these letters after the Patmos vision, that makes up the book of Revelation, then these are his swan song. It's possible these might be the final, his final message, uh, you know, to his believers. And uh, we often want to ask ourselves, were all the prominent men in the early church exemplary? No, apparently not. We're going to now encounter a negative example, okay? Theophrophes, or however you pronounce that, the dictator. And we're going to find that he has five specific indictments leveled against him. Verse 9, I wrote unto the church, but not Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, and receiveth us not. you got a couple of issues right there. And uh, he loves to have preeminence among them. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, if I asked you, who was Mr. Arrogance on the on the radio? Most of you could quickly fill in the blank of that because that's, that's somewhat his image. But in this case, this particular one, receiveth is not. So, okay, what is this all about? Hospitality was a key commitment among the early church. You know, we think travel's tough today. We just got back from a 
serving at a conference and having to connect flights, and you come back exhausted. But <laughs> in those days, they didn't have TSA. <laughs> they didn't have, uh, you know, airline check-in problems. We think we have a tough time. They did, They went on foot. They went on foot. And Peter also emphasizes the issue of hospitality in his letter, as does Paul in his, in Timothy, Romans, and Titus, and so on. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. This guy's a first-class troublemaker, isn't he? John says, Wherefore, if I come, I'll remember his deeds, which he doeth. And then he goes on to list them. Okay? Prattling, prattling against us with malicious words. That's the one that bothers me the most about this. What a tragedy that there's so much slander and defamation within the body of Christ. That's been one of the toughest adjustments that I've made going from the secular boardrooms. Spent 30 years in, in, in the boardrooms. Now I look back and realize I had the benefit of, uh, of dealing, being involved with some really first class people. May not have been believers, don't be sorry, but they were quality people. My biggest adjustment in getting into full time ministry has been dealing, is to deal with these shoddy ethics, uh, within the community. The deceit and the uh, slander and uh, it's just uh, uh, the, the toughest part of the last couple, last 20 years. I've just been doing the you know full time part of this. I was thirty years in the boardrooms, then about twenty years in, in in you know doing what we're doing here. But uh, anyway, we'll talk a little more about this before we go. Contention is the evidence of pride. People say, Chuck, will you will you enter into a debate on pre trip post trip? No. Somebody wants to talk about it, just wants some serious understanding of why we hold those views. Great, but I don't believe in debates, not for these kinds of things. Why? Because that that's a pride issue. Where there's contention, there's pride. And I, I, that, that to me sounds dangerous. We've got to be cautious about accepting what we hear about God's servants. We've got to be, be very cautious. And uh, we hear, we, uh, of, every, of every conflict, you know there's a major side you have not heard. So we should give that great respect, the part we haven't heard. The disturbingly frequent occurrence of gossip, and even worse than that, public slander among Christians is one of the most astonishing paradoxes that I've encountered in the decade of professional Christianity that succeeded my three decades of an executive career in the secular world. And I've included some notes on this most hurtful sin in addendum to the study when we finish here. But you should also recognize there's a fatal disparity between rejecting doctrine and false teaching and the rejection of the brethren with whom we may have a divergent view. That's the other side of this tension we're talking about. And uh, so, this fatal disparity between rejecting doctrine and false teaching and the rejection of the brethren, this indicates an insecurity. God was a threat to Diophantine's station. He certainly wouldn't be looking forward to John's threatened visit, I'm sure. It also indicates that Jesus wasn't preeminent in his life. We know a lot about him by these actions, this errant member. But we do need to be diligent to have no fellowship with apostates, as we reviewed in our Second Peter study and Jude studies. 
And we should refrain from entangling alliances with unbelievers. We learn in 2 Corinthians 6. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. See, they that do evil can include pulpits, authors, and TV and radio commentators. If they're not on the mark, they can be promoting misunderstandings, deviant views. We need to understand the dangers there. We should also avoid those whose doctrinal position is contrary to Scripture. That was one of the, that was the part of the good news of the, ch- the church at Ephesus when Jesus wrote the letter to Ephesus. They were strict on doctrine. Now they had some problems, lack of devotion, some other things, but they 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 did hold to this well. They they reflected Paul's instructions to the Ephesian elders in Acts twenty. Now John's other two epistles are going to stress this same point, one of them in a very surprising way, but I'll leave that for the time when it comes up. There are five indictments. If you go through the verse I've just read, there are five indictments leveled out. He must occupy the leading position in the church, apparently is his view. He wants to be preeminent. He actually refused to receive the Apostle John. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? In fact, I uh, had an interesting question posed to me. My wife and I have just finished a book called The Kingdom of the Power and the Glory which is really quite a, uh, it's really addressed to the church of Laodicea, assuming that it's indicative of our day. And, uh, but somebody, and, and, and a number of pastors have been, not a number, a few, have uh, been quite uh, stressed over our book. And, uh, uh, but one of, the, one of our defenders wrote that said, what do you suppose was the reaction of the pastor of the church of Laodicea when he received the package from John, from Patmos? And that's a speculation. We don't know what happened. Someone says, yeah, we probably convened a council to excommunicate John. <laughs> but that's sort of the flavor we've got here. Third, he made malicious statements against the apostles. He refused to extend hospitality to the missionaries. And finally, he excommunicated those who did not receive, excuse me, who did receive the missionaries. He not only refused hospitality, he excommunicated those who d- did receive. The one of these that bothers me the most is number three. He made malicious statements against the apostles. And I'm going to come back to that one before we're through tonight. You got you know anybody like this, by the way, in our day-to-day? People are self-opinionated, self-exalting, rather than self-effacing. Self-made, self-sufficient, self-willed, self-satisfied, self-confident. Do you know any like that? In a word, they're in the flesh. It's not in the spirit. Now, he ostensibly was uh, the first exalted ruler of the church. When he dies, wisdom will die with him, it would seem. And I'm being facetious here. You know, such can wreck a church. And also, don't overlook the presence of Mrs. Diotrephes, too. Even among the disciples, there were excessive aspirations. We see that in Matthew 18, in contrast to the kenosis of Philippians 2 and so on. We could go on and on about that one. Preeminence is not for the pastor. The preeminence is reserved for our King, Jesus Christ Himself. That's what Colossians 1.18 is all about. And so on. And uh, even John the Baptist said it so well. He must increase, I must decrease. That's the spiritual position. 
And by the way, the Greek verb here is in the present tense, active voice. Indicates that this was a constant attitude to promote himself. It wasn't an incident, it was his style. There is a plaque that hangs in my wife in the lobby of my wife's ministry that I think is terrific. It's attributed to Augustine. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, agape, love. Boy, good advice. Okay, third, the third uh, epistle of John, now we take the third guy, Demetrius. Now he's the exemplar, and he gets a commendation, of course. Verse 12. Demetrius hath a good report of all men. And, you know, that in itself is staggering. He had a good report of all men. That's pretty cool. Everyone has their boosters. No, this one has a good report of all men, and of the truth itself. Now again, I believe that, that John has a style here of using that as a title of Christ. In fact, if, it probably should be capitalized. But anyway, yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. In other words, he has a report of all men, but those all men include me, is what he's saying. Here is an exemplar, an example worthy to be imitated. You know, one of the tragedies of our life today is the lack of role models. You know, it's interesting that uh, I remember as a kid growing up, you had all kinds of role models. They may not really have been that good of guys, but you at least had people you tried to emulate. It's hard to find any today outside maybe the sport world. You certainly don't find in politics um, and, and a lot of other places. But uh, lack of role model. That's what we're called to be. And uh, it's interesting. Uh, there's a converse view here, though. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. So out of Luke here, we get a little echo saying, be careful. If everybody's speaking well of you, that may be because you've compromised all the right people. Right? You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the books of 123 John. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.